Welcome to Four Thoughts of Our Founders, the podcast for the Higher Education Leadership Foundation. We are practitioners, scholars, administrators, and researchers seeking to find like-minded individuals committed to creating rich cultural capital for the sole benefit of this space. Most importantly, we are at We at Health describe ourselves as zealots of this sacred space. Got a really special guest with us today, really excited about it as we begin the first podcast of our special series, Who's Got Next? Like to introduce to you none other than Dr. Amelia Parnell. Welcome to the podcast, my sister. How are you today? Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're, Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, absolutely. We're happy to have you. Um, I will take a point of personal privilege and just get it out of the way. You are a Floridian uh, and also <laughs> um, uh, right down the street, as they would say back at the crib uh, from Duval County, uh, from Lake City, Columbia County. Um, happy, happy, happy to have you. Happy to have you. That's right. Good to be with you, neighbor. Um, so as I mentioned in the, the intro, you are the first of a new series here at Health that we are really excited about. Um, part of what we do uh, is really centered um, on the foundation of, of service. Um, service to self, service to mankind, service to others. Uh, but service. And we feel like we have um, platforms that we've not really utilized uh, best we could. And so we're sitting around thinking about how do we um, make sure that the next wave, because uh, the next wave will be here sooner rather than later. How do we identify those folks? How do we uh, connect and create um, a rich bevy of practitioners who can draw from each other. And we came up with this Who's Next series. And it's really about looking at leaders, um, young leaders who are aspiring, um, who are aspirational, who are leading now, and those who are emerging leaders, um, hearing what's going on in their world, what they do, um, and knowing that the secret sauce is really about exposure and folks finding connectivity and, and other voices. And so you're the very first person uh, in that uh, in that space. Um, so we want to give you a round of applause for being <laughs> the first. Thank uh, you. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Uh, no pressure at all. The bar is not high at all. <laughs> no, not at all. But but you, you can handle it because you attended um, a really special school to uh, most folks. One that was. Um, I don't know if this was before your time or not. It probably was, but was at one time the number one college and or university in America. Ah. Um, you you want to tell everybody what, what uh, college that was or university? Happy to, yeah, happy to do so. And it was during the time that I was there. Okay. Uh, the, the one and only Florida A&M University. Okay. 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 We got a rattler in the building. We got a rattler in That's the building. That's correct. Um, proud rattler. Where where are you from, Amelia? So originally Lake City, Florida. So Columbia County um, includes Lake City, and if you are not familiar with Florida, that's where I ten and I seventy five meet, and that's mostly 
the only reason why someone would really know where Lake City is. It's often <laughs> confused with Lake Land, <laughs> something like that, Plant City. Like, yes. no, it's Lake yes. City. Lake City, yeah. That Lake is City. the intersection. That's interesting. I never really thought about that, but that is exactly where Lake City is, huh? Mm-hmm. A lot of people pass through there on their way to someplace else. So yeah. you get the luxury of having a lot of restaurants near the interstate, but yet nobody seems to recall staying there or visiting. Um, there used to be a time, I think, when there was a um, a Hall of Fame, like a Florida Sports Hall of Fame, I think, yes. used to be uh, located there. And I think even that moved <laughs> someplace else. So, <laughs> uh, but there's been a, a, a resurgence, I would say, though. So that's not to say that Lake City is not the place to stop through. I think things have changed, and Lake City actually is. Uh, a destination spot for some people who are coming from the north and looking for, you know, warmer temperatures. It wouldn't be smart to count any county or city uh, out in the state of Florida. Yeah, it would. I would be. agree. So Amelia is the vice president for research and policy at NAS NASPA, right? Student Affairs mm-hmm. Administrators in Higher Education. I know there's also a NACE. Is it NASAP? I think it is mm-hmm. for practitioners as well. Um, yeah. What's the difference between those two? So you really started off and asked me the hardest question of, of all. No, and, 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 I'm, I, and I'm only asking because I am not a student affairs practitioner or yes. professional. So, and, and I always struggle saying NASAP and NASPA. Um, uh-huh. So, um, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Me, I'll make it even more complicated for you to say that <laughs> if you were to even <laughs> Google NASPA, you might get the North American Scrabble Players. Association. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm probably more interested in getting that uh, than. (laughs) (laughs) So when I I said the hardest question, um, it's truly uh, an interesting situation in that in higher education association land, I would say, there are a lot of acronyms and there are a lot of associations that Mm -hmm. are in the same space, but they have slightly different focus areas, slightly different missions, but they're under the same umbrella. So I think I would start here. You know, uh, give me extra minutes to kind of break all this down. But if you think student affairs, um, the function on a campus, which can house everything from academic um, counseling to career counseling to conduct, health and well-being, there are a number of functions within that. And all of those have their own professional association. So if you think about it, let's say you're assistant director of housing, you might join the Association for Housing Professionals, which is a Kuho I. I won't go through what that stands for, but mm-hmm. that's a dedicated association for housing professionals. Gotcha. Same thing if you were in career services or if you were in orientation and all mm-hmm. the other functions, right? So think of NASPA, maybe in the, this is probably not so timely, but a, a relevant example. Think of if you were, um, if you had a, a hangnail on your toe yep. and you, your, your toe was hurting, you might start off by going to your general physician mm-hmm. and the doctor might say, I think I know what this is, but just to be sure, let me see you to the podiatrist. I would make that same comparison and say that NASA is probably much more of your general practitioner. We're kind of an umbrella. The umbrella. That we have. I got you. Yeah. Thank an umbrella. You. So you have, there you go. A lot of resources for everybody who works in student Thank affairs. You. But if you work in a specific area, you might join that one. Now there are other general uh, physicians, not just one. So NASAP, I would say is, is another one. So, NASA and NASAP are similar in some ways in that we would say we both serve the same general population Mm -hmm. of professionals who work in student affairs. Mm -hmm. Um, But even within general practitioners, some have specialties. Some would say, hey, I'm more of an internal medicine type focused person. Another one might be a family physician. So if you get to know NASAP, they have a rich history. Uh, I believe they were founded somewhere around the mid-60s or so. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their professionals work 
on HBCU campuses. So okay. I will be specific to not say it's, it's not an association specifically for um, HBCU professionals in student affairs, but you'll find that if you engage with NASAP a lot, many of them do work on HBCU campuses. I got their, their annual conference is often there. And I, I, I like them very much. I've gotten a chance over the last uh, several years to get to know their leadership team, um, had an opportunity to speak at their last conference. So I, I really enjoy them oh, uh, quite a bit. Super. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's, it's great. So we know that um, we know you're from Lake City. We also know you went to undergrad. We won't get the, uh, you know, the perfunctory stuff out of the way. So folk that, yeah. you know, who are listening know um, that this is a solid, solid sister that is spitting <laughs> some gems today. Yes, yes, yes got to do it. Got to do it. You're from the Korea. Um, uh, but you also got did some masters and some graduate and professional level uh, work. You want to want to share that with the folks? Sure. So with my twin sister and I both went to FAMU for undergrad, and we chose it because they had a strong and still do have a strong school of business and industry. Mm-hmm. And at the time, this was you know late nineties. The, the dean there had a lot of corporate relationships, and the Dr. idea was Sib- that what is it, Civil uh, Mobley, Doctor Mobley, Civil yes. Mobley, yes, ma'am. Dr. So then that was the reason we chose FAMU. I think the, the black college experience was a plus. Um, I think growing up uh, as kind of a high achieving student in a predominantly white high school and even, you know, all through K-12, mm-hmm. going to a school where everybody, you know, looks like you, like the same TV shows, that was just a breath of fresh air. But the primary reason we chose FAMU was for that program. So yeah. the plan was to go there, get an MBA in five years and go straight from there to corporate America. And somewhere along the way, uh, twists and turns started to happen. I did a couple internships and realized that I didn't think I liked business uh, for the reasons I initially thought I would. Hmm. Now, also, also keep in mind, at the age of 20, I'm making major life decisions based off of We all do. Mostly. So you're normal. We all do. Yeah, we comfort <laughs> mostly. Right. So I got the MBA, uh, ran track there you know, for a little while, and had a really great undergraduate and graduate experience at Banyu, and found myself after that. Um, working for a consulting firm for a while, and then I ended up back at FAMU as an internal auditor. Uh-huh. And that was really what kind of was part two to me being awakened to higher education as a field. Part one was during that that um, undergraduate master's period when I did three summers um, helping out with the FAMU Upper Bound program. And so, I didn't know about Upper Bound, any of that stuff. But So let me ask you a question, the internal auditor. Like, how mm-hmm. how cool was that to work um, in that space, because I, oh, I don't think people well, know, like, I think most people think it's just about, aha, I gotcha. Um, and <laughs> yeah. it, it really isn't. How, how cool was it to work in that space? And, and would you just share just a little bit about what what you thought were some of the great pieces and aspects yeah. of being an internal auditor's office? Well, you know, I have to admit that the internal audit role is not one that I think most people on the campus would seek out. So mm-hmm. no one's saying, like, when I, when I get out of college, I want to be an internal auditor. <laughs> right. So I kind of truly, truly fell into it. I can also say I've not heard many, many people say that they are welcoming a visit from their internal <laughs> audit. You know, most college. are. So, most are. So I want to make the distinction and stick up a little bit for internal auditors. So, you know, I think they're there for the right reasons. Um, the distinction is that most times when you hear the word auditor, you think tax, you think they're trying to catch me. You know something going on that shouldn't be going on. You know, I'd, I'd leave that more for your external auditors. The internal auditors are really supposed to be your internal friends and colleagues to help you keep track of things, so that when the external auditors, you don't get caught, you know, doing something you're not supposed to do. Right. So many internal audit offices are set up truly to look at things that might be financial or they might truly be operational. So my experience there, I mean, honestly, I probably say is 
at least 80, 90% attributable to me even being in higher education. Mm. Because in that period of time, that's a strong statement. In that period of time, I got exposed to more of the campus level decision making than I ever expected. At that time, FAMU was considering uh, moving from 1AA in football to 1A. At the same time, they also switched from being a part of the state-operated financial system to doing their own thing through PeopleSoft, and they had to completely launch this brand-new enterprise resource planning system, and so mm-hmm. there was a lot of training going mm-hmm. on. And so to be a team of, I think, five of us at the time, we were all over the place, you know, learning more about what was going on. I did a lot of interviews, looking at a lot of financial statements, and it just sparked my interest. And that was the first time since college that I actually started to see connections between business and higher education. I'll, I'll approach that lightly. I know that some people, it makes them cringe when you describe higher education as a business, but I saw so many <laughs> connections between those things. It was just obvious. And I was like, this is, I kind of like this. Yeah, I think I think that's the problem is that many people don't understand that while it is nonprofit and it is about education, it is still a business Um, Mm -hmm. and it should be referred to. You know, there's this um, this quiet um, notion in particularly in the HBCU space that there are two models that these colleges are ran on. One is the church model and one is the business model. and those that are thriving oftentimes have adapted to the business model and those that are thriving or not thriving are, you know, there's some strong resemblance to those, you know, running it as a church model. And that is not a negative connotation. So let me be clear mm-hmm. about that. It just it's just a difference, uh, a different way of saying that one is progressive and one is not as progressive. Um, so I, I'm sure that there are probably some folks who take exception to that, but there's no, absolutely no um, um, negative connotation to those descriptors. Been around for forever yeah. and a day. Yeah. I wonder if you think it, there could be a, a middle ground in that. I, I kind of would love to take a piece of both. I mean, I think in the, on the one hand, those that operate maybe with a, a more church-centered model um, they think more relationally. They think about the, the fine details of the experience, the, the community aspect, not just the larger ones and those run more like a business don't. But I think there's something to be said for wanting to have your board comprised of community members and things of that sort. On the flip side, I think that the, the ones that are operated maybe with a church model could learn about scale. You know, I find that more of the state-funded public ones that are larger in size and they're looking to move faster, quicker, um, develop more, you know, resources for the purposes of scaling and scaling quickly. I think that you know, the other side could learn from that as well. So <laughs> I, I like you, you know, that maybe that sounds too diplomatic. No, I, no, I it doesn't. And I think I kinda don't want to toss either. Yeah. And I, I think Amelia within the first 15 minutes, we've demonstrated why this series is, is going to be invaluable for folks. Um, and, and I, <laughs> yeah. and I mean that seriously, like a, a hybrid um, is precisely mm-hmm. correct. Now, outside of, um, we talk about empathy and I'll tell you precisely a, a great, a great example of that. I am not Harvard University. When um, COVID-19 hit, Harvard said, go home tomorrow. Right. Right. I cannot give you what Harvard can by way of big, shiny buildings, endowment, world class mm-hmm. and renowned faculty. But empathy mm-hmm. and a solid education is something that I can give. I didn't kick our students out. We helped them get home. We didn't mm-hmm. leave it to their vices for them to get to where they're going. 
Um, we gave them an entire week when we made the decision and helped them get to where they needed to go. We helped them mm-hmm. with all the resources. And that is the special sauce that can't be duplicated. I don't care how much money you throw right. at creating a black uh, space on a PWI. You will never duplicate empathy and the spirit that permeates on these campuses, right? And so I, I yeah. think you touched on something and I now believe that there'll be a race to define that middle ground because I think you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. Uh, there are beautiful aspects of both. And if you can merge yeah. the two, I think you find ideology that says you're in a sweet spot all day long. I think so too. I think it's, you know, it's about, I think embodying what probably fits easily on a logo. So if you, if you were talking to any fan, you and they would say that there is, is excellence with caring. So the mm-hmm. idea that excellence can still happen, but the experience is one of, you know, support and caring and things of that sort. That's but there right. are a lot of different variations of how you can do that. And mm-hmm. I think doing it consistently is the key. So I find, you know, and maybe I'm just biased, but I, I find that those campuses that choose in a hard moment like that, like the way that Wiley did it, if you would do it in a hard moment, you would do it in an easy moment Absolutely. as well. And you, and you would do it when no one's watching. And those students would be the ones that come back the next semester because you didn't just kick them out. They, they actually, they helped me leave, but it, they did it in a way that made it seem like they wanted me to come back, yeah. which means, you know, they want the relationship. No doubt. No doubt. And that intentionality, I think you find um, on all campuses, but there are varying degrees of it. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not here to, cast down um, institutions for size and wealth. I just know that the uh, through my own personal experiences um, that there are varying degrees of intentionality. Um, Absolutely. So you, you're done with school at, um, at FAMU and you are yeah. working and then you have, you have an epiphany or is there a liminal moment that makes you say, uh, well, actually, you identified that. You said there was something yeah. that made you say, yeah, higher ed is where I want to be. Well, it made me think, what is higher ed? Because, you know, 18, you know, age 18, coming away from Columbia County, going to FAMU, I was not even thinking about higher education as a field, let alone a major of study, let alone a career, you know. Path that's that's, that's what, because it's not Amelia. Right. It's just a, it's just a school. Right. <laughs> yeah, the people just, that work there not, don't have jobs or careers. They're, they just right. they're just there. <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking at the time. So what happened was I, I was in that job as an internal auditor. And I know I glamorized it first and said I got to learn all these things. I got to pick up on all these insights and things like that. But there were some days when I just was confused. I was like, well, why did you do it this way? Now, fortunately, I said we being an alum. So it wasn't like I was not a part of the the community even on the employee side but i'm thinking why did we do it this way why didn't we try that instead and so if you've ever seen that tv show the sitcom home improvement yes where tim allen is, is talking to his neighbor on the other side of the fence mm-hmm. i had a scenario like that in my office and then i had a colleague his name was jorsky still is jorsky you know he's still with us we still, nothing, nothing happened to him but mm-hmm. at the time we were sharing this office and there was a bookshelf and every day i would come and sit down at my desk and i would ask these questions like why did we do this why did we do that and finally he was like amelia uh, have you have you heard of the the, um, the major of study higher education administration? I said what? He said have you heard of higher education administration? There's a major of study. This is a field. People study this stuff. I said why are you telling me this? And he said you're annoying me every day. You come <laughs> over here. You ask me all these questions, and you would make a great researcher. I think that you should look into this. Florida State has a program 
and maybe you should just go over there and see what they can tell you about it. And I was like, really? And so at that point, I said, well, hey, let me look into this. And I was already starting to feel like, you know, I needed a change. Not that I was unhappy or anything like that, but I was, it was mid-20s. So I had the way next too much challenge. energy. Yeah, yeah I, was, I, was, I was young, and I had way too much energy. So what I told myself was that I would go over there, I would apply, and if I liked it after semester, I'd stick with it. And in the first semester, it all started to click. So all of the links between business and higher education, the things I learned from working in trio programs and all that stuff. And so I switched and instead of becoming a full-time student um, only, I had really a lot of energy and ended up working for seven years during the time that I was doing my doc work plus some as a policy analyst for the Florida legislature. And so I was kind of really, really, you know, on the grind. So Mm -hmm. learning a whole lot about state policy at the same time, learning a whole lot about state policy, you know, formally in the classroom. So that, that, that probably took up about five and a half years, the rest of my mid-20s, you know, all the way into the early 30s. And um, I don't think I would do it again that way, but it did, <laughs> I think, it, it gave me a head start to have such a long career of experiences, but still have to be at a certain young age, I would say. Well, it uh, certainly, without question, uh, built uh, some some character, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so so <laughs> you, you're done with the Ph.D., and are, are yeah. we are we at um, FAM when we're done? Or what, what was the next? Um... No. So we are done with the PhD, still working full time as a policy analyst for the Florida legislature. And that was really think think like the House and Senate. You know, you'd have members who have ideas. You know, they might say how much this, for example, how much revenue will we bring in if we decide to increase the amount of each toll on the Florida Turnpike by 25 cents. And they would ask a group of analysts to run those projections as well as give them pros and cons. If you do it, you'll get more revenue. If you don't do it, you know, you'll get less. If you do it, you might have people avoid the Turnpike, things like that. That office was the office that I worked in. And instead of doing studies of transportation, I was doing studies about tuition models. I was doing studies um, related to career academies for the K-12 environment. So I got to really learn about a whole lot of higher ed and K-12 issues. And so by the time I got the PhD, I had been doing that for about seven years. Again, that same restless moment comes like, I don't hate it, but I kind of want to do something different. So then I pivoted and ended up working for the first association. It was the Association for Institutional Research. So back to what I was telling you, there are a lot of associations in higher education, Mm -hmm. each with a different mission and focus. This is another kind of gem of an office that most people don't run to, but when they realize it exists, they like it. So this is the data office, for lack of a better way of describing it. Okay. Almost every campus has that office that's responsible for doing mandatory federal reporting of data to the Department of Education, but a lot of other things, too. So these days, if a college president, you know, like yourself, would have quick questions about which students are performing in certain places, you call that office and that director and that staff would do this. So I work for that association that represented those professionals. And what I thought was going to be this, you know, an opportunity to do some some research on that field, that function, very nerdy, you know, weedy research stuff, turned into me having a much more macro view of higher education and got to learn a lot about what campuses who have data um, are doing, what things they're not doing. It's just, it, was, it was not the direction I was expecting, but it was actually really, really good. And it was still in Tallahassee, so I'm still living there. And it was it was really cool. It was my introduction to national networks. And mm-hmm. so I think that opportunity really, really um, took me in a good place, I would say, humbly to meet a lot of people. Um, and the network has kind of expanded from there. How, how important is, and, and this may sound silly, but um, how important, is, and I'm going to ask it anyway, how important is research? Okay. Uh, how important is it to, to what? How, exactly? how important is it um, 
how important is research? Research, the practice mm-hmm. of research. The oh, oh, the practice of, of research. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm biased, and then I would say I think it's very important, but I think it's it's important with context. So, for example, if you know, back to that hangnail, that that hangnail example. Mm-hmm. If I go to a physician and he or she can look at it really quickly and say, hey, it's not it's not infected. You don't have a fungus, no big deal. I'm trusting that that physician has done enough research to know what they're looking at. So to me, research is important, but indirectly in that example. If I'm a college VP of, you know, of finance and I need to know what the enrollment projections for the next semester are going to be, I want to look at some historical data and I want an analyst to do some research on what the patterns of enrollment will probably be six months from now. I want that research to be exact because I need to use it. Now, if we're talking about me wanting to go buy a new refrigerator, do I need to do research for weeks on different models if I can afford it? Probably not. So I think for what it's worth, I would focus less on the the term research and probably just informed decision making. So the idea that you're not just shooting, you know, in the dark or from the hip, but that you have some relevant context for whatever decision you need to make. Now, there's true that the phrase, uh, the one overused analysis paralysis, at some point you don't need to research everything before making a decision. Mm -hmm. But I do think in most cases, having an informed opinion or an informed decision and quality informed. So, of course, you, there's tons of information around it. doesn't mean it's all accurate. Um, but I think that research in general is not a bad thing. I think that within the right context, it will mean more to some than to others. And I don't think that every conversation needs to come into it with a whole bunch of facts and figures. But I oftentimes find myself growing weary, you know, from the just anecdotal. You know, I want to know so about to invest in something, be it my time or my money or just, you know, my you know, my contribution is that I'm being invited to a conversation that's informed by soft research. So I probably am biased. That's a long way of saying I think it's important. Maybe not the most important, but it should be balanced with, uh, of course, the, the human perspective. All well, the research in the world um, alone is not enough, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I think um, your point is it, it's made and clear. I, I think what's always fascinating is that um, the level of research that goes into policymaking um, mm-hmm. for me uh, and how much knowing, uh, knowing how influential research is for policy making and how mm-hmm. important it is for um, the data. You know, there, I think in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, people always use this data-driven decision maker. I'm a data-driven uh, decision maker. Uh, just, it makes me crazy. Yeah, me too. And I, I had to bring it up but because I want people to really hear. Like, that phrase was so powerful, I think. Um, but it was oversaturated um, because people used it because they thought that it was a sexy thing to say and mm-hmm. made you this this smart person who crunched numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But I don't think people really understood uh, the context uh, and, and the gravity of that sentence, data-driven yes. decision-making. Let, let's talk about well, that because- I, I would mean, love to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, because that's where, that's where you at. That's where you're at. That's where you live at, research and policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about that. I would love to talk about that. So the first point I usually make is that data do not drive. <laughs> data inform. It can't drive. And they can't drive. <laughs> and I know what people mean, but, you know, they say, oh, we're making data-driven decisions. It's okay. I'm happy that they're even talking about it. I'm happy that someone wants to use data. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that's the only way to make decisions. And the reason I said informed just means that you're you're having some context for what you have to do. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that you should completely toss out, you know, your gut, your understanding of trends, things that are not going to be explained in raw numbers or even in interviews and, and focus groups for those who are more qualitative, you know, researchers per se. But I think we are at a place for what it's worth where years ago this whole buzz around data driven you know decisions as well as predictive analytics as well as artificial intelligence you name it there's a whole long list of things big data was in there this whole thing it was you know we can't be a great organization if we're not making data driven decisions all that mm-hmm, kind of stuff mm-hmm. i think it did signal to me that people realize that as budget starts to shrink and the pressures continue to increase making decisions off of just i think this is right was not going to last much longer and so mm-hmm. i think the sentiment was that i got to be able to show some evidence, some proof that this is what we should be doing. And I think some people probably went a little too far and it created a great divide. And I do this all the time. Whenever I talk to somebody, I say, actually, I like talking about data. And they're like, oh, you're one of those data people. I'm not a data person. I'm thinking, actually, no, we all are data people. When you when you look at the weather every day to see what you should wear, you're, you're making an data. informed decision. That's right. You're, that, that's right. You're making it. Everybody doesn't need to be the one running um, logistic regression, but you, you choose and make decisions based off a lot of data that are around you all the time. And so I actually, you know, this is a shameless plug, I should say. And uh, I think this is the first time I've talked about this uh, in a recorded format. So this this might be a bit Okay, so I'm, I'm writing, we're ready for I'm it. Writing a, I'm, I'm writing a book. And the book is called You Are a Data Person. And it's for that audience of people who say, oh, Amelia, that sounds all good. I heard that podcast you did. And, you know, that sounds all good, but I'm not a data person. Uh, mm. John does my data work or, you know, Sally or Susan does our analytics type stuff. And what I'm trying to suggest is that to have a data identity, part of it true, yes, the, the true data identity does involve doing research or analysis. But I think part of having a data identity also includes some other things. So mm-hmm. let's say you're not the one who is in, you know, the institutional research office crunching numbers, but you just have a knack for being able to ask clear questions, right. being able to know exactly what you want. I think curiosity and inquiry is part of that identity. I think, of course, research and analysis is part of it. I also think communication and consulting is a part of it. So I know you probably sat with somebody who gave you five pages of data and reports and could not really clearly communicate what all that meant. You have to be able at some point to distill that thing down to one or two points. What do I really need to know? And be able to do that for multiple audiences. Maybe you weren't the one who constructs the data, but if you're that person who can consult and explain things, I think you still have a bit of a data identity. I think along with that comes campus context, industry context, as well as the ability to strategize and make plans. And so I feel like that broadens the arc for all of us to say we all have a place and we all are data people. I know the the, the pundits might, you know, critique that, but I think I, I'm in a unique position to be able to say that. Mm-hmm. I can have those weedy, nerdy conversations with people who want to go there. I prefer not to, really, because most times those are a little bit more boring. Uh, they, they're necessary sometimes. But I, but but I, I also really think, those. logically, how you just explained that, logically, I, I don't mm-hmm. know where that would be an invitation for pundits, to, to be quite honest with you, because that, it was salient, but it was also, it, it was just practical, the way you explained yeah. it. And I can't tell you how many meetings I sit in where people believe that when they come with this book, a report yeah. of information for a 30 minute meeting, um, I'm, I'm lost at the very beginning. Yeah. 
right? Because yeah. if, 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 if I don't open that up and there's not an executive summary that I can skim through rather quickly mm-hmm. um, and be um, intrigued, then I'm, and, and, and on top of that, you don't have the ability to synthesize or distill that down, we're, mm-hmm. we're gonna have problems. We're gonna, there, there, there will just be no connection there. Um, right. And while you may have some really, really important information that I need, I'm probably going to find it from someone else. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that goes back to the many components that you picked up about um, researchers and people and policy and those who uh, look for data to inform their decisions, um, mm-hmm. how important it is for you to have the skill set of communication. Oh, yeah. I think that's um, that that is uh, one of the big, big nuggets out of what you said for me is because oftentimes you're in this space where people are not uh, adept at communicating um, uh, information. And it's Mm -hmm. it's really tough reading your bio, Amelia. I learned something that um, expanded my thoughts of what student affairs is and all encompassing, right? I know that there's housing. I know that there's um, health and wellness reports to them. I know that there's um, the uh, student activities and all this good stuff. But I never thought about college affordability and student, well, you know, the outcomes, yeah, but the, the college affordability piece you mm-hmm. you are you know i guess is safe to say an expert in this space um let's talk about the importance and 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 the reason why i want to talk about um both college affordability and student learning outcomes is that both of those um create a nexus between accreditation mm-hmm. and and i want to talk about that uh, first, the college affordability. Um, how sure. does that fit into the the student affairs analyses um, and policy space? Well, I'd say here, um, affordability literally, you could go in the in the sense of saying, can they afford to go? What happens when that gap is there? You mm-hmm. know, tuition costs five thousand, room board costs another several thousand, aid falls short. What do students do? And I usually think that falls into student affairs, not just student affairs exclusively. So naturally the first priority, you know, group that would be looking at this would probably be financial aid. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of activity within student affairs to address that college affordability piece, really um, with regard to emergency aid. You know, and that's that's one of many buckets, but that's one where student affairs has been involved for decades. And so it's starting to get more attention now. You see a lot of research that's, that's been coming out. NASA has been a part of that. We've led some of that stuff. But I think through my research, what was most fascinating was when I started asking, you know, college VPs of student affairs, what are you doing to help students afford college? They said, well, actually, we have a little bit of an emergency fund. And some of them were truly not sophisticated, but effective. It could have been, and this might make some president say, hey, you shouldn't be doing it like this, but a, a separate fund, maybe it's in a desk drawer from decades ago. Mm-hmm. And they would keep that on hand. And if mm-hmm. a student said, hey, I had a flat fire, they would go to that fund and they Absolutely. would help the student out. Yep. And, that, and that was it. And then I would say what we've progressed into now is much more uh, financial well-being, counseling, coaching type stuff. So you'd be more proactive and have a student saying, hey, I, I think I'm going to have to take out a loan. 
student affairs or as part of their advising and counseling function would say, let me explain to you how this loan process works. Let me explain how this matches up. Perhaps maybe you could do a little bit less of a loan and take an on-campus job. Not necessarily funded by federal work study because a lot of student affairs functions actually hire students. And so I think you can approach it from a, a lot of different angles. Some of it is truly if you run into something unexpected, you can't afford an expense, you might have to drop out. That's one way. Another one would be coaching and advising about what your financial options are. And the third is actually helping to address that affordability gap by providing jobs and um, some wage work for students. You know, I still think that, you know, it, it's tricky because, you know, people, um, slush funds have such a negative connotation to them mm-hmm. and or, um, you know, discretionary accounts. But I can't right. tell you how often I walk across the campus and see need. It, it could be mm-hmm. a roll of quarters for um, laundry. It could simply be the group is going over to McDonald's and one in the group mm-hmm. doesn't have 10 bucks to, to eat, but wants to eat with folks. Like there's something to be said about that little um, drawer full of money. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still a practicer of that. Like I'm, I'm going to have some cash when I'm walking across the campus, not for any other reason other than knowing what that will, what, what, what difference five, mm-hmm. 10, 15 bucks could make for an entire week. Um, mm-hmm. and when you work, um, on the campuses, and I don't think this is analogous to just HBCUs, um, but all campuses, because we now know that food insecurity is everywhere. When you are right. in it, you realize the gravity of, you know, folks at about seven o'clock, they're tapped out and their day is just beginning, or it seems as if uh, college is ending, but their day is really just beginning, extracurricular activities and all that good stuff and, mm-hmm. and hunger sets in. And so, um, hearing that, I think there's still a need for some of the old practices um, to be able to help with that affordability. Because uh, to your point, a flat tire can be the difference between a person coming to school um, a day or missing an entire week or two. I mean, you, right. you, you <laughs> one flat tire can mean no transportation. That could mean that I've got to make enough money uh, as mm-hmm. a bartender to get a new tire and, and come to work. So that affordability mm-hmm. piece has so many different meanings to it. Uh, and that's oh, what right. I was trying to extrapolate out of that question, which you which you did. I, I okay, have to good. tell you, you boy, it's going to be hard for the rest of these folks coming behind <laughs> you, Amelia. You know, don't tell them until after. You know, don't let okay. them know. Okay, all right. I won't, I won't tell them. I won't tell them. Now, let's Unless talk. Unless they're listening, in which case they don't. They probably are, but. <laughs> okay. Now, let's talk about the, the, the student learning outcomes and, then, and, and yeah. then make the connection between affordability and learning outcomes and accrediting bodies and the, the role mm-hmm. that those things, how they can impact uh, a college's accreditation. I, got a, I think I got a good example. And this touches on stuff that probably the age old debates that exist about groups on campuses. And, you know, this is, I'll say it, and I'll say that I, this is my hope that even in the middle of this you know, COVID-19 crisis, mm-hmm. we're starting to see less of the back and forth that people continuously like to describe as tensions or conflict, which I wouldn't describe as that. I would just say it's just the nature of doing business. So mm-hmm. 
um, there are a couple of different groups on campus that oftentimes, you know, they, they, they're in the same sandbox for lack of a better, you know, mm-hmm. analogy, but they don't do the same work, but it impacts each other. So you'll see, I'll start with an easy one, which is information technology and institutional research. Mm-hmm. Um, IR is typically talking about data, IT, they touch on data. You get into who owns the, the mainframe system, who controls what data should be live and which data should not be, you know, stored that way. Uh, if, if the president wants something, which one of us should be the one to give it to him? So it's not necessarily a tension, but they both have to work together. And sometimes the rules get blurred. Mm-hmm. The second example is academic affairs and student affairs. And I've seen that shift happen um, one way, you know, depending on the decade we're in, and then back another way, depending on the decade that we're in. I've seen in terms of org structure, some put both of them together, you know, under one leader in the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Others have them completely separate. And so what this comes let, down let to Let me ask you is, this, Amelia. Let me ask you yeah. this. When they're together, do you find mm-hmm. that there's ample voice for either or, or do you find models uh, that work best when there are two folks at the table representing both of those entities? You know, I'm going to go neutral and say it depends. And the reason why is because I think it, it varies depending on type of institution. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about a you know small private college of 2,000 students, maybe something like that, 1,000 students, and they decide to have them both under one umbrella, I think it would probably work just fine. Um, given the volume of needs and concerns and a, a population that size, you might need them to be together and simply prov- because it, and, it, it needs to be in, in terms of accessibility, I would say. Yeah, well, well. I think and providing that the the person with the bullhorn is knowledgeable of both entities. Of both. Yes. Yeah. So I can make a I can make a case for that. On the on the flip side, there are a lot of things that I think um, one who has to be responsible for both of those would have to be knowledgeable of in order to ensure um, the fidelity of both functions. So what you're looking for is someone who really, really knows the intricacies of what faculty want, how they're going to be approaching um, their own general learning outcomes for their classes, as well as all of the conduct stuff, all of the housing stuff, all of the so on and so forth. So, you know, you're looking for a bit of a, an all-purpose uh, leader. And so in some ways, that, that appeal of just saying, let's just put them all together, all of it as far as the student experience, has created a bit of a hardship for the person who has to lead both of those roles. Now, they could, of course, hire a bunch of ADPs and say, we'll split it out that way. But I wouldn't position either one of them as being the better of the two, so much as I would say, depending on what the student population's needs are, you know, that's how you would determine the best work structure. And it may be that you have it one way for a decade and then you change it and then you change it back. So I, I think what's probably most important is that the campus design what type of student experience is essential and then figure out what pieces have to be there in order to make that happen for the leadership that you have. So, you know, if your your cabinet changes, maybe your structure changes. But I think that's another story for another time. But mm-hmm. to answer the question about student learning outcomes, here's where you get to that, that bit of a rub, I would say. So it's the idea, and I believe this, that learning happens everywhere. Now, that creates a bit of a discussion point because some would say, well, in student affairs or outside the classroom, that's engagement. Inside the classroom, that's where the learning happens. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I think it happens in both places. I think engagement happens outside the classroom and engagement happens inside the classroom. I think learning and the approaching of learning outcomes happens inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And I can give, you know, lots of great examples. I think the, the way I would connect all three of those things you just described, so affordability plus learning outcomes plus, you know, accreditation. I give you a good one and just say um, student employment on campus. I think it's one of the probably most under absolutely. absolutely of the college experience and you can achieve all three if you are working with a supervisor and you've been there in that function let's say you're working in the 
campus recreation center, assuming that we all get through COVID nineteen and can go back to campus. <laughs> yes. Let's say you are you know working. Please, the front baby desk, Jesus, right? please, please, baby can Jesus. we get can we get on back to campus? And you have that student who's been for the last year, you know, working the front desk, and so they now know how to engage with visitors. They know how to plan schedules. They know how to be accountable for timesheets. They know how to do a lot of things, right? And reporting to their supervisor, that truly is a work environment. Oftentimes we talk about career services as those students have to leave the campus to get work experience. Institutions of higher education are employers and we can provide those same types of skills. I think with some intentionality, the same types of learning outcomes. Now, I don't want to position it as to say that the learning experience is the exact same and can be substituted. Uh, for which you would get in the classroom, but it can be complementary too. So for the purposes of accreditation, if they say, hey, the following um, student learning outcomes need to be present on this campus for this period of time, mm-hmm. where can the campus provide those? Don't exclude student affairs or you know co-curricular engagement if right. they're legit. Now, not, not everyone should be counted, but I think with some intentionality, you could get there. I think you could do it. So that student employment opportunity provides a wage. It, it enhances student learning outcomes. And I think that accreditors want to see that. So I'd say in a very tactical example, imagine if it were Amelia applying for a job and you see my resume and on it, it says that I took a debate class and it also says that I was an official for club sports. If you didn't ask me about that, you might assume that I'm just highly engaged. And I like athletics and happen to be taking a debate class. because I'm just, you know, a great order, right? If in my interview, I say, I actually am really great with conflict resolution. You might assume that that came from the debate class because I'm actually debating with somebody. It got a little heated and I mm-hmm. just, you know, make my point. When in fact, that could be example number one. But example number two is that I'm officiating the championship game for flag football and the two rival teams, the captains got into it. And I had to figure out how to defuse that situation and keep turning it going. Right? Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. So I quickly, because it's, it's a big deal. So I think that for what is worth, campuses that are intentional with looking at where learning outcomes should be happening and how to measure those things, back to the data point, you don't just get credit for anything because you got to have some way of measuring it. That's right. To say that a holistic experience is one that connects the outside of the classroom with the inside of the classroom. And I think accreditors want to see that. They want to see that the, the campus experience and the basis of learning, maybe it's not exclusive to the classroom, but that needs to be present somewhere. You know That's what? my long answer. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant answer. And it really speaks to the fact that really nothing is new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people have been uh, there's been an engage there has been engagement and learning in and out of the classroom since the very first day. Um, Mm -hmm. When you think about HBCUs um, in the classroom, you were taught how to conduct yourself um, with uh, decorum. Right. Uh, Outside of the classroom, you were you women couldn't go off campus without. Uh, the gloves and their dresses Mm -hmm. needed to hit a certain space. That practical application now that we call it, you know, um, the co-curricular or extracurricular or whatever, it is all the same. Um, When people talk about intrusive advisement, that's the new fancy thing that folk want to talk about. Uh, These dorm mamas and professors have been beating folk across the head to tell them to get to (laughs) class from day one. Right. That that that's not new Um, and nothing is. But connecting the dots, um, institutions that don't find themselves in the greatest space um, and being able to capture data and really tell a story, a rich story. And what I mean Uh by finding themselves in the space is that they aren't able to really tell how impactful they are 
and how powerful they are and how much data they do co- collect uh, right. and how much it is informing their QEPs um, and uh, all the things. It is directly attributable to those who simply are not telling the story because I posit mm-hmm. that the information is there. The out mm-hmm. the information for outcomes uh, are there. We oh, just have to I, make sure yeah. that we're 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 tell we're capable of telling uh, the story and writing it in a way mm-hmm. that transfers what seems to be practical application to outcomes that mean you are worth your weight in gold. Oh, that's true. I I, I have to respond to that and say uh, most times when someone asks me, well, Amelia, what what type of um, investment should we make in technology? Which one of these mainframe systems? Should we buy? And I usually say it's the one that you can afford and that you know how to use. And <laughs> it's, it's not to be flippant, but it's to say that most it's times when someone comes to you and says, like, you know what I think we should do? We should collect data on insert. And I usually would say, what are you going to do with that when you have it? So back to my earlier point about it's not just needing more data. It's about having a plan. Use the strategy part of it is important. But now to your point about these stories, I would I would claim, and I think if anybody who, were, who would have attended FAMU around the time I did, and was in the business school, there are some things that I learned practically that I still put into practice today that today. I know mm-hmm. the school probably never thought about it. But when you made the, the statement about leaving campus, mm-hmm. to be in that school of business and industry, we had to at least a couple times a semester engage with corporate guests off campus. And so they would have a reception and a certain number of students, maybe 20 or 30 of us, depending on who's, you know, who signed up for which night, we would have to go and you would engage and you would, you would talk about how the, the company is doing. We had homework that we had to do. So we had to sound like not just sound, but we had to prepare and ask questions in a certain format. Yes. Um, leave with the, that's the whole deal. But there were small things like um, keep one hand free, make sure that you have one free at, what, at all times. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can shake mm-hmm. someone's hand. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it was very like over the top. Like, why are you telling me what to do? And now every time I'm in a reception, I find myself looking across the room at the people who have the just glass in one hand that. and the plate in the other. <laughs> and I'm the one who walk right up and say, how you doing? How my you name doing? is Billy, That's... and I sit in that hand, right? And I'm like, ah, rookies. <laughs> they, yes. they know so little, you know, that type of thing. But, yeah, I, I know that the, the the weight of needing to prove with evidence that something is working is high. And oftentimes these data conversations, though we make them sound easy, everybody on the campus is not as comfortable having those conversations because if you have to be the one that brings the data about your program and it's not that great, then you're nervous that your program's going to get cut and there's all this competition. I hear this term data is a you know, powerful thing and those who have it are the powerful ones. There's a lot of drama there, much more than it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, but, it, but I, think I, would, it, I think it's a boogeyman, yeah. Amelia. I really I do. So um, and And I think much like that, this whole notion for faculty members Shout out to all faculty members, by the way, mm-hmm. um, this whole notion of teaching online and using yeah. technology has just been that argument has been obliterated. Right. Mm-hmm. Because everyone had to get with the program in a short amount of time to make yep. sure that we could service our students, not disrupt their educational um, experience um, by way of instruction everybody had to get on board with that. And so when I, when I, I, COVID-19 for me will be, um, I think for as long as I'm around, um, moving forward, a place where I'm able to look back and say, let's remember COVID-19 
and what happened, mm-hmm. all the great things that happened from I'm heartbreaking by uh, heartbroken by the, the tragic stuff that is happening. And it, it has right. struck really close uh, to me um, in that we are um, in trouble with uh, the fact that our family, one of our family members succumbed to it. Um, one oh, of our no. family members here at Wiley. Yes. One of our professors yeah. who has been with the college for 42 years uh, is um, succumbed yesterday. Um, oh, to, sorry to hear that. Yeah. So it's, it's been uh, pretty tough uh, for us. But I say that to say that in it, it has made us COVID-19 has made us move quickly uh, and do mm-hmm. things that we ordinarily would not have done. And I, and I thought about that when I, I told the faculty, like, the boogeyman is dead now. Um, you <laughs> right. all now are on online and you're teaching it and it didn't kill you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the same thing that when people actually find themselves in this space where data is um, not just used as a vehicle for information, but, you know, becomes a way of life. I think they'll find what they do much more richer because of it, because of that experience. I think so. I, I'm on a personal mission to try to convince people that it's not so scary yeah. and that, you know, it's, it's a good thing to try to pick up. I think much like you about COVID-19, I, I'm, I'm rooting for it. When I say us, the collective us, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to be able to put to rest some of those old anecdotal, you know, clips about higher education being so slow to move. You know, yeah. the idea that, you know, leadership changes in a Fortune 500 company. Next day, they replace the CEO with somebody else. In higher education, the search takes a year. And so this, <laughs> this idea that on the, that's on the, the funny side, on, the, on the, the critical side, it's like, well, higher education won't change. These systemic things, they, they've been baked in. They can't be undone. And I'm thinking all it took was a crisis to show us that we actually could move in a faster way. And I, I'm, I'm rooting for us to say that if we learn what we should learn from this, we'll see that together we actually can do the types of things that we always hope that we would. So I, I do remain optimistic, but I, I do also hope that this is uh, done <laughs> in the next couple of months. Like we can get back to, you know, being together in person. You and me both, you and me both. I, um, this has been rich for a lot of different reasons. Um, let me ask you this as we cut across the field, what is okay. your hope uh, for higher education? In general, yes, or specific general. to a HBCU audience? Well, not that. Well, I'm going to ask you in general, and then you absolutely we're going to have to knock out the fastball belt high question about yeah, the HBCU as well. But in in general, what's what's your hope for higher ed? Well, I think my larger hope for higher ed is that it still remains as an option that people choose first if they want to. Um, I think I work in an industry. We work in an industry where we know that not everybody's going to go to college and some days that disappoints me, but other days I, it doesn't bother me as much because I think people can choose based on where they want to they want to apply the talents. But for those who want to go to college, my hope is that we won't reach a point where there are so many closed doors that we create an even bigger divide between the formally educated and those who are not. It, it pains me the idea, knowing all the data and research that come out about the value of a college degree, despite its expensive cost, but the returns on that investment if done strategically, are still much higher than those who don't have a college degree. So for those who want one, my biggest hope will always be that they can get one and that we do right by them when we start to you know, admit them and have them be a part of our 
campus family for a while. So that's my that's my biggest hope is that those who want to go to college, um, despite all the challenges, can actually do so and make the most of it. You know, just as you have this personal mission to make data friendly, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm on this quest to to get people to to understand or reimagine um, the investment rather than debt. When -hmm. you think about um, investments, it is all about appreciation, right? And Mm -hmm. we buy houses, they depreciate or some appreciate, but we buy cars, they depreciate. Mm -hmm. We buy clothes, they depreciate. We travel. Yeah, the experience is, you know, a it's something that you can't replace or monetize, et cetera, et cetera. But the point, the only real thing or one of the very few things that has the propensity to mature is the $40,000 you spend on an undergraduate Mm -hmm. degree. Every year you get an opportunity to grow that investment. Your salary mm-hmm. should not be forty grand after four or five years in the space. So if right. we can get people to really think about, I'm making an investment in myself. I'm going to bet on myself. Now that means that I have to position myself to be in the best space to maximize the earnings on this investment or the return mm-hmm. on it. I think people will walk away from this notion because I a lot of people are not going to college because they don't want debt. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how true or the the notion that um, college is the surest vehicle to upward mobility. Um, yeah. I don't understand why people can't grasp that. Now, I will say trade schools, you have to throw that in there as well, because there are some sure. folks who are making the world move mm-hmm. in trades and they make a really good living. A formal education, whether it be technical or liberal arts, is critical, I think, Agreed. and vital um, in this space. So I, I, too, have a personal mission in trying to get people to understand that what we're doing really is an investment in ourselves. It's not debt. It really is an investment. Yeah. And I think I could take us to task and hear the concerns of those who would say, uh, well, I graduated with all this debt and I can't find a job. Or my friend graduated with all that debt and couldn't find a job. I do think it's still on us as higher education professionals to make sure that we do as best we can to show the students or the learners how to make the most of college while they're there. So the, the response I always make is that, hey, I'm sorry that, you know, that, that friend of yours couldn't find a job immediately, but they do still have the potential. And that does get over at least the, the basic minimum requirement for most jobs that would put them in a market that's different than if they did not have one. It may not be in the field, but it does get them farther along, you know, the way. But I can I can hear the concerns of those who would say, I got to campus, nobody nobody checked on me, nobody asked what type of major I chose and why. You know, so there are a lot of reasons why I think support services um, need to be still there. Not to necessarily handhold and coddle, but truly at that forty thousand dollar investment, I know if I bought a forty thousand dollar car and that forty thousand dollar car starts to malfunction. I would take it to the dealership and say, hey, I just bought this brand new car. I want you to fix it. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Right now. They don't get to come back. Yeah, <laughs> I want you to fix it right now. And so I feel like, it's, you know, it's important for us to at least the same way you would provide a driver's manual for that car 
to have a pretty good manual of steps for students while they're in college, not just leave them out there and say, hey, buy this and not know how to use it. So yeah. I think we're doing okay. I think we're, we're going to be fine. But how about I'll keep my mission, you keep yours, yes. and we check in. For time we'll meet in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. we'll, meet we'll meet in the middle. What What's your mission for, or not mission, but your, your hope for the HBCU space? That we don't let anybody diminish our relevance. And mm. that seems so self-serving, so self-serving. But it's important to me um, for anybody that has gone to an HBCU or researched the, the outcomes of HBCUs or talked about the, the funding streams for HBCUs or knows someone who went to an HBCU, they're going to be connections for all of us. And I, I really, really hope that we never get to a place where we limit the potential of what those conversations can be to be just simply, it's a place to educate African-American students. It's much more than that. The histories are too rich to be diminished that way. I think that the promise of the future is too bright to, to diminish them that way. And I think the students who are there right now deserve better. They need to hear the narratives that, you know, if you're, you're built on the foundations of people who really created a space where there was none, I think we can continue to do that. And so I feel like, you know, the idea, even with the podcast, is, is forethought forethoughts of our founders, of our founders. Mm-hmm. I think that those founders would be well served and honored and remembered to know that in this you know day and time, we're, we're making the dream live on. And it's not just for symbolic purposes, but if you think about the missions of why they were first created, we still have a lot of African-Americans who are looking for a caring and empathetic place to learn, mm-hmm. but also a place that is high achieving and excellent cause of the year and all these things. And so they don't get to, they don't get to go to an HBCU as though it's less than they choose an HBCU because it's greater than in a lot of ways. Mm. And so I, I feel very, very strongly about this and it makes me frustrated when someone asks the question of, is that really realistic for a student to go to an HBCU? I mean, the real world is not like that. That's big. That, that, that's, <laughs> if you really get me fired up, you know, fast, I would say don't, don't diminish the value and the mission of an HBCU by only describing it by homogenous or somewhat homogenous population. Describe it by what it's filled with and what it can do and it's still doing. So that's my biggest hope. Now, fortunately, I don't think that there's anybody out there with a hit list of HBCU saying they want to close them all down. So I don't have any, any person on the outside to be directing that to. Right. But I find myself oftentimes just keeping my ears perked up whenever Absolutely. I see those little op-eds that come out and you know, criticize these PCUs. I feel strongly about that. Even if I hadn't gone to FAMU, I would I'd probably have a, a close place in my heart for it. I think intrinsic value is really difficult to explain. Yeah. That's that's just it for me. And and you know what else? I had this this epiphany when I was walking this more exercising this morning that um I am happy now. I, I realize that we're a novelty and we're also historic and that mm-hmm. H in HBCU has a much stronger connotation than, yeah. than, than we give it. And I am one of those people like you, it is to me saying the relevancy question is tantamount to, you know, saying my mama is fat. Right. We, we about to mm-hmm. fight. That's what's about to fight. That's oh, yeah. what's about to happen <laughs> yeah. when you ask me. We're about to fight. Yeah. Um, we about to get and, into it. Yeah. And so I just thought to, I was thinking to myself, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to now welcome those questions. I am no longer going to be in this offensive or defensive mm-hmm. posture any longer um, because if they stop talking about us, 
if they stop asking those questions, then there's a whole nother issue going on. Mm -hmm. That would mean that we are no longer relevant. The fact that you're asking me the question means that we are. And I could hit you across the head with a million different reasons why why we're relevant, but I'm no longer going to do it anymore. I am simply going to smile and, and probably in a nice way, ask folk to do their own research and find out the answer yeah. to that question. Um, but so you think research is important? Then? It's important. That that's yeah. where we started, right? We started that with that question. See, I brought that back. <laughs> yeah. See, I, let me tell you what I know for certain. I'm glad I'm not coming behind you, my sister, because this <laughs> this has been rich. Um, this has been great. This has been great. I've enjoyed it. So before you before we let you go. Um, you have to go through what everybody else goes through, and that's some, uh, some, um, some. I guess what, what, what we, I don't know if we want to do it uh, any differently, but we're we're gonna hit you with some rapid fire questions. Oh, okay, all right, all right. So I know you. I meant I picked up that you ran track, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So FloJo or Marion? Oh, you gonna go right there? Yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> Scandal aside. Scandal aside. Yeah, scandal aside. I'm going to go with Mary. Okay, okay. Um, Carl or Usain? Oh, oh. I'm going with Carl. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. I have to. Basketball or football? Oh, pro or college? We'll go college first. College first is going to be... Football and pro basketball. Okay. But a very, very close, very, very close. Thing. Very close. Very close. Um, Florida Gators or Florida State Seminoles? Ha! Florida and Rattlers. Ah, I love it. Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. Good one. Favorite dessert? Ice cream. Um, last book you read? Ooh, and I'm going to pick it up right now to make sure I get the title right. I read this book actually in one day. It was it was pretty good. It was a very quick read, very easy read. Mm-hmm. And it's called, oh, where did I put it? It was, I'm probably going to mess the title up. Of course, I misplaced it. It was, I think, like seven seven tips for investing like Warren Buffett. Oh. oh so you counting coins over there and, and making, sure that they, yeah, making sure yeah, they get in the right basket, Tom. Yeah. That's important. Um, Long drives or um, long walks? Am I solo or with somebody else? Either or. Okay. If I'm solo, I'm going to say driving because I want to make my own playlist. I love music. I'm a music head. And listen, I don't want to be debating about what to be on the radio. Listen, and, listen, that's why yeah, I drive, yeah. right? I don't even like sitting <laughs> right. in the passenger seat because there's no. this understanding mm-hmm. that that person who has the steering wheel also controls control. all the knobs. That's right. right. That's right. So it's not that I have control things, but I know what the music can be. Yes. So that's that. Yes. If it's a walk, then we can stroll, sure, bring some company. Okay. I'll, I'll walk with others. Okay. So you, you just opened the door for me. Favorite artist. Music, that's you about to go. Oh, Stevie Wonder, hands down. That's it. Look at you. Look at you. I knew there was a reason why I liked you. Mm-hmm. I knew that's where you're going. Stevie Wonder, period. Period. Nothing <laughs> else it. to talk about. Period. 
not comma, period. Listen, let me tell you something, Amelia. I'm so grateful for Verna or who is the me maven. Too. There is no Shout greater maven than Verna Orr. Shout out to Verna, who's also from Duval County, um, yes. has done some really rich stuff, and she is a guru of all things, um, but a just a really solid human being. I thank her for the connection. Um, Me too. And I want to thank you for joining us and being our first, the very first in the Who's, Who's Next series. Um, it's been a blast. I really hope... Uh, that you've enjoyed yourself. The pleasure was mine. You asked really great questions. And um, honestly, it's just going to sound cheesy. I feel kind of inspired. You know, I think some of the things we talked about are not things I talk about all the time, but, you know, periodically, but in a different way. So I I, I feel invigorated just by hearing your thoughts and um, seeing how all this fits together. So, so I'm honored, like I said, to be a part of the podcast. This is, this is again, pretty dope because our, our um, tagline for the Higher Education Leadership Foundation is lead, inspire, lift. There it is. <laughs> That's it. No, I, I think we would be dead ass wrong if we tried <laughs> to do anything else after that. We have to stop right now. We That's have it. to stop right there. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you, Doc. I, I appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. This is Herman Felton, uh, one uh, piece of the puzzle uh, of the founders of the Higher Education Leadership Foundation. Man, did we just have a great conversation. Amelia um, really, really gave um, clear insight on uh, several different things, but I love the fact that she is a zealot for, you know, policy. Um, This, again, is the beginning of our series of who's next hope you're out there listening i hope you too are inspired by something that may have been said some thought that may have been shared um but more importantly i hope that you take uh, agency that you find here um, and use that in a way that allows you to be excellent until the next time I pray God keeps you in the very palm of his hand and um, hope that you find yourself in a space and place where you're able to give God all the glory. Peace, blessings, and until the next time, stay thirsty, my friends.